So for the whole summer, we've been moving through the journey of the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes, the teachings of Jesus, begin in Matthew chapter 5 and are embedded as what is called the Sermon on the Mount. And what I've said about the Beatitudes are the Beatitudes are the preamble to the constitution of the government of God. That's the language that we have been using, like a setup, letting us know this is what Jesus is about. So as a common practice, what we've done is we've read through the Beatitudes together, and I'd like us to do that one more time this week before I go on vacation next week. We're going to read the Beatitudes one more time together, and then we're going to jump over to the Lord's Prayer. So let me read the first four lines, and then we'll begin with blessed are the poor in spirit together corporately. All right? You good? You ready? Okay. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I shared last week that one of my common practices as a pastor here is I begin each morning when I come into this building by praying the Beatitudes over our church. And it's been a great practice to step into. And so I stand up here, I declare the Beatitudes over this church because my heart's desire is that we would be a Beatitude-shaped type of people. And then what I do is I move out sometimes into the neighborhood and I do what are called prayer walks and I just pray over our neighbors. And I've been praying the Lord's Prayer over our neighborhood along with the Beatitudes. So you'll see a guy, a bald guy, walking around, sometimes muttering words to himself. I am talking, but I'm talking with Jesus and talking about our community and talking about ways in which people can come alive and understand how amazing Jesus really is. One of the beautiful prayers that we read come out of Matthew chapter 6, right in the Sermon on the Mount. So Last week, we moved off of the Mount of the Beatitudes, and we started to climb another mountain in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a series of teachings that Jesus said, this is my manifesto, this is what I'm about, this is what I'm doing in the world, and he gives a series of like many teachings all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And then he teaches us how to pray. So we talked last week about, well, how do you pray, and, and can you get it right, can you get it wrong? And so we talked about prayer. And so what I want to do is I want to I read the Lord's Prayer together with all of us. Again, we're going to declare it together. So from your seats, let's say this together. This is coming from the NIV translation, so it may sound a little different than your tradition or what you're accustomed to. This, then, is how you should pray. Here we go. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. So um, I live in Columbia City, which is a little uh, neighborhood over in Seattle. You guys have heard of this city over there, Seattle? It's right across the bridge and uh, the water. And uh, so every day I drive Rainier Avenue, sometimes Martin Luther King Jr. Avenue. And uh, my good friends, the Newells, who are here this morning, also live in the hood, in the Columbia hood. And so we're over in Columbia City. And what I've been doing in Columbia City is I've been walking my neighborhood praying this simple prayer. You ready for this? Our Father who art in heaven, how great is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done in Columbia City as it is in heaven. And that's what I say. That's it. And I repeat it over and over again as I'm walking. And I'm asking the Holy Spirit, give me a vision for my neighborhood. Like, fill me with passion and love for my neighbors. What can I do? I'm here, right? I'm, a, I'm this little light, this little light of mine. I don't want to hide it under a bush. And I want to blow it out. <laughs> I want to shine bright like a diamond, right? I want to shine in my neighborhood. And so I just pray that God would infect me with the same heart that he has for the neighborhood that he's placed me in. And then also, I work in this place called Mercer Island. You guys might have heard of this place. And last week, I had shared how a friend said, you know what you should call it? You should call it Mercy Island, based on the Beatitudes. And we talked about being merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And so I really liked that, because it helps me grab on. So um, Holy Spirit, I say, Father, Your name is great. Your kingdom come, your will be done on Mercer, Mercy Island, as it is in heaven. And I've been praying that over this island, and I invite you to do the same in your neighborhood. I dare you to do the same in your neighborhood, for your neighbors, in your workplace, wherever you live, work, and play. Utter these simple words and see what happens to your heart. I wonder what would happen to your heart as you began to gain a vision and come into alignment with what God is doing in the world. Now, in this prayer, if you throw up the first part of the prayer again, Ron, it talks about the kingdom of God. And in Matthew's translation, it's called the kingdom of heaven. Can you throw up the next line, Ron? We'll get to Jesus' greatest hits here. Yeah, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when we ask for the kingdom of God to come or the kingdom of heaven to come, what exactly are we asking for? Do we step back long enough and go, what is it that we're, we're longing for when we ask for the kingdom of God to come? Now, we've said all summer long that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, interchangeable terms, can be referred to as the government of God. It's how we order ourselves. This is how we do relationships with one another. This is how we create um, order within the chaos. This is what it looks like when God is ruling and reigning on Mercy Island. When God's kingdom is coming on this island, what would it look like? So when we pray, your kingdom come, what we are doing as God's people is we are fully aligning ourselves with God's greatest version of reality. We're reorienting ourselves around the way of Jesus and asking, we want to align with what you're up to in the world. We don't want to come with our own presuppositions, but we want to align with what you're 
doing. Now, as we grapple with scripture, I wanna share a little bit with you to give you some context that I think will be helpful for you as you understand what's embedded under the kingdom of God thinking and the language that these gospel writers are using. To the Jewish mind and to the Jewish person, history is always moving forward towards one common goal. And that common goal is the kingdom of God. Now, Matthew, when you read Matthew, Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven. And when Matthew's talking about the kingdom of heaven, he's not talking about the place that you go after you die. He's referring to the kingdom of heaven. It's the same thing as the kingdom of God. The reason why Matthew uses heaven is because Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. And Jews didn't say the name of God. It was so sacred that they wouldn't even write it. How, how dare you even try to write or attempt to speak the name God? So they, they revered it so much that they would use different names like heaven or the almighty one, the holy one, because to say it or write it would be disrespectful to who God is and all of his power and majesty. So when he says kingdom of heaven, he's referring to God's domain. This is what it looks like when God is ruling and reigning and acting as king. So when you read through the Old Testament, you will see the prophets who are longing for the day when God would finally impose and establish his kingly rule over the entire world. This is what they're moving towards. They longed for a day when God would rule and reign without any opposition and without any rival. And their belief was this would all happen on earth. This wasn't gonna happen someday out there somewhere. It was gonna happen right here on dirt, rock, earth. And it was all gonna be ushered in through God's Messiah. So God was gonna send somebody and God's new world order of bringing order back into the chaos was gonna happen through his Messiah and everybody would worship God without rival, without opposition. Now that's a dream and an idea that we can get behind. It's like, yeah, that sounds compelling. So Jesus also knew that Israel wanted a king. But their understanding of a king was is they wanted somebody to come in and lead them into victory over their enemies. At this particular time, it was Rome who were considered their enemies. So we need a king, a leader, that's gonna lead the charge. We're gonna go in and overthrow the government. God's gonna lead us into a great battle and God's gonna rule again without rival or opposition. It's interesting how we love that narrative as human beings of the idea of battles. And we love the idea of going up against our enemies. We can get behind that. It's like, yeah, we gotta go up and make sure that anybody who's in opposition to the ways of God, we just gotta remove them. And then if we step back in the story a bit, in Matthew chapter four, verse 17, we talked about this months ago, but he says, from that time, Jesus began to teach and preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that's a loaded statement. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I oftentimes when I hear that, I think, man, how would I have heard that if I was steeped in Jewish tradition? And I thought about God sending his Messiah to usher in a whole new world, to lead us into a great battle that Israel's long-awaited history was now colliding with this person, Jesus. Could this be the one that we've been waiting for all along that's gonna lead us into a great victory? But Jesus says this, he says, repent, the kingdom of heaven 
is here. It's upon us. Again, what is Jesus referring to? We have to step back and ask the question. He's referring to a brand new world order. And it's called and centered in God's chosen Messiah. And this Messiah was going to make all things new, humanity and creation itself. So when you say, pray like this, your kingdom come, your will be done on Mercy Island, just as it is in heaven, what are we asking for? This is huge. We want you, Jesus, to rule and reign without any opposition, without any rival. That's a dream that we can get behind. And then Jesus says the time is fulfilled. The moment we've been waiting for is here. But here's where the problem comes in, friends. When Jesus starts talking and preaching and demonstrating what the kingdom of God is and was, it seems to be in conflict with a lot of people's messianic expectations. Because as they watch Jesus going in, this is what the new world order looks like. And who does Jesus start hanging out with? Well, prostitutes, tax collectors, unclean people, people that you're not supposed to be in contact with. Then he starts talking about these eight announcements. He talks about peacemakers. He talks about the pure in heart and the merciful. He says these audacious things like the pure in heart. Oh my gosh, these are the people that are gonna see God at work in the most unexpected places and in the most unexpected people. And he shows us what it's like as he's moving on in his mission and ministry. And guess what? The more that people heard and saw what Jesus did, what was their reaction? They walked away, right? It was like, I don't know if, I don't know if I'm, I'm in for this. I thought we were gonna overthrow the government. Like, I'm in for that. Like, who wants to overthrow the government? Yeah! But loving the poor and the prostitute and the tax collector and the dirty people, I don't know if I'm in for that. And Jesus is setting up. He says, this is what the new world order looks like. He keeps telling people, put down your weapons. And he keeps telling people, weak is the new strong. And he keeps going into this, this dialogue. So what happens when the messianic expectations that we have don't align with what Jesus actually is all about. Now question, if Jesus ushered in the new world order and was going to rule without rival or opposition, when you look at Seattle, does it seem like God is ruling and reigning without opposition, right? Absolutely not. Now when Jesus came, instead of casting judgment on people, he took judgment upon himself. The Bible talks about this event called the second coming of Jesus. There's lots of buzz right now about the second coming of Jesus if you haven't been paying attention because of all that's happening in the world. And there's lots of opinions and debates. Maybe you've heard of all of these opinions and debates around the second coming of Jesus. We're not gonna unpack that this morning. We don't have the time for it. But there is this particular day in the Bible that's called the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is really about the judgment that God is going to bring at the end of time where he's gonna restore everything. We're all gonna come before him and be judged. And he's going to finally act as king, like without rival. That's the day of the Lord. But when Jesus came to earth, it's really important to pay attention to what he did say and what he didn't say. And there's a difference. We have to pay careful attention. I want you to hear what he did say in Luke chapter 4, 18 through 19. Listen very carefully. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. End of sentence. What is Jesus quoting? Does anybody know what he's quoting from? Like you Bible students out there, you know. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2. And he's quoting from that because it's a messianic section of the scripture. So Jesus is referring to himself as this messianic figure. And he's doing what is called remez. And remez is when you leave a certain thing off. It's a Jewish um, way of talking. He leaves a certain section off to communicate a point. And because his audience would have had the scripture memorized, they would know what Jesus was doing. Like, he just said most of Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, but he didn't say the rest. And what was the rest of Isaiah 61, 1 through 2? If you want to just make a cross reference and look at it later on, but I'll just give you the short condensed version. After he said, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, he stopped there. Isaiah says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Judgment. He didn't say that. So according to Luke chapter 4, what Jesus is saying is, I'm going to do this great reversal. I'm going to bring in this new world order. I'm going to restore humanity. I'm going to get hell off of earth. I'm going to bring in all kinds of people and let them know that they're okay in the eyes of God. And he starts doing all of these things, and he's doing this great reversal. And it's now Jesus starts talking about a particular time. So when Jesus says the time is near, what kind of time is Jesus talking about? Well, the kind of time that Jesus is talking about here is kairos time. Kairos, the Greek word, comes from the word chronos. Chronos comes from our word chronological. Chronological means calendar, date, or as I say in my fancy terms, tick-tock time, right? Chronological time is tick-tock time. Jesus is not talking about tick-tock time here. He's talking about opportunity time. Now is the opportunity Kairos is that moment, that divine moment determined by God that his mission has now been brought into the world. So Jesus says, the opportunity is now, the fulfillment has begun. So what does that mean? It means this, every day is loaded with possibilities that we might be participating in the kingdom of God that Jesus ushered in a whole new world order in any moment. I oftentimes say, it's never just a meal. We think it is but it's never just a meal. It's never just a Bible study. It's never just a conversation. It's never just, hey, how's it going? There's always a possibility of something else going on if we're paying attention and we understand that every moment is loaded with an opportunity to step and align in with what Jesus is doing in the world. Because I believe that Jesus is always at work. He's never not at work. He's always at work, always pursuing people's hearts. And we have been given the opportunity to jump in on that. So when Jesus invites us to pray, your kingdom come, do you see what's going on here? This is a massive opportunity where you can wake up in the morning and go, I'm game for that. Like, what do we got today? Who am I going to meet? What am I going to encounter? This is revolutionary in our thinking about what Jesus came to do, that at any moment he could break into our space-time continuum, that the future could break into the present. But he says the kingdom is at hand, which also means has come near. So what does that mean? It's really confusing, isn't it? Does it mean it's just about to arrive, so get ready? Or does it mean it's here right now, so let's participate? People will press you that you have to pick one or the other. 
I'm going to go out on a limb and just suggest, can we have both? Can the church live within the tension of the already not yetness of it, but it's coming and that it's actually here? And I know that there's passages of scripture that talk about it coming and that we should be expecting it and waiting for it. But at the same time, in Jesus' announcement, he said, it's here. And how does it manifest here? I think it manifests in this thing called miracles. Some of you have heard of a miracle. I think miracles are part of God's grand announcement. Miracles are those unexpected moments when it turns and you think, I can't explain that, but something shifted. And it's almost like wherever Jesus is, miracles are just normal. And when there's not miracles, it's abnormal. And you think about like, this is just normal where people's lives are being transformed and changed. And if you think about when the kingdom of God is present, what should we be looking for? Well, here's a couple of things. People that are usually excluded are included. Think about it. People that have been categorized as those are unclean people, unacceptable people, are brought in and are now claimed clean and acceptable. Jesus invites all kinds of people to his parties that people don't generally invite to your parties. Wherever Jesus is, the present kingdom is present as well. So when you pray, Jesus, come, let your kingdom come, what you are asking for, and I want you to think about the implications of this as you're walking wherever you live, work, and play. Come to the aid of the powerless. Stand in solidarity with the poor. We will follow you in your mission and join and participate in what you're doing in the world today. When we say, let your kingdom come, it's another way of saying, restore dignity back to this woman who has been abused. Give her dignity back. Wherever, wherever the dignity of a woman is being restored, the kingdom of God is present. How else will we be able to identify? And this might get some of your attention in the room. Jesus went to a person named Simon who was a zealot. You know who the zealots are? The zealots were part of that political movement within Judaism that wanted to overthrow the government. And they wanted to do it through force. So Jesus has the audacity to go call somebody who wants to overthrow Rome through force. And he says, Simon, come follow me. Then get this. Next, he goes to a guy named Matthew, who's a tax collector. Who do tax collectors work for? They work for the beast, the empire. So Jesus brings in Simon, and he brings in Matthew, and he says, we're going to learn how to get along. That would be like, okay, what, what could we like, bring it into our context? Senator Rand Paul, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Bring them together, you both. I want you to be my disciples. Tucker Carlson, Anderson Cooper. Bring them in. The Jesus way is always the third way. It's not this or that, it's the third way. It's how do we learn to live in the tension together? And you might know, oh, now we're getting into the kingdom of God stuff because we're living in the tension. So my caution to you would be, be careful what you're participating in because you might be participating in something that's going in the completely different direction than the one Jesus invites us to because he calls two arch enemies to be on the same team. Who does that? Who does that? Be careful. He's making all sorts of outrageous claims that he's 
on everyone's side. And it's not us versus them, it's us. Because he's given us the third way. And I've heard people say that the kingdom of God is already here, but not yet here. And I would caution us to say, don't separate the two. Live in the tension. It's coming, but it's already here because Jesus began it. He inaugurated it. And when he said it's at hand, he meant it's begun now. Jesus already won the great battle. Our greatest enemy has been defeated, death, defeated. Jesus took care of it. It's over. So when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, on Mercy Island as it is in heaven, what does that mean? Unveil your kingdom here now. I dare you, friends, to invite the kingdom to break into your present reality. I dare you to invite it in, to walk through your neighborhoods, to pray for the kingdom of God to come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Heal the sick, mend the divides, restore human dignity. Help us to be ridiculous when it comes to loving our enemies and help us to be stupid generous. Where it doesn't make any sense. And I will warn you, when you pray this prayer, you will lose control. Watch out. And if we start entering the kingdom of heaven here and now, and Jesus starts ruling and reigning in our lives and in our church and in our communities, I don't know if we're gonna be super stoked as to what evergreen will start to look like. But do we have the courage to pray this prayer? I wanna offer you up a couple of things because I think this is how we're supposed to respond. And I'm gonna call Jared and Linnea back up. So then how shall we respond to this? First of all, I invite you this week to pray, to align with Jesus, to walk your neighborhood, the places you live, work, and play. If you are able, you can also sit on your back porch and pray this prayer and begin to get a vision for your neighbors. God, let your kingdom come in this beautiful neighborhood that you've placed me in. Let your will be done in Bennett Street, Columbia City, Seattle. Let your kingdom come in my neighbors. And I start naming them by names. And I think about all the ways that I get to jump in and, and, and join in with God's mission in the world. And then the second thing I would invite you to consider is to, to pray the scary prayer with me. Here's the scary prayer. You ready? Okay, Jesus, do whatever it takes to make me more like you. Pray it. It's a scary, terrifying prayer. Okay, Jesus, do whatever it takes to make me more like you. And don't be surprised when he does.